Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 82. Oh my God, you guys, this... <laughs> I will tell you at the end how this happened because it, it still is blowing my mind, but this interview is with someone who I uh, is, is like a role model, an idol to me, someone I've been watching on TV for, oh my God, 14 years now. So I was super surprised and even more excited when he agreed to be a guest on my show. And I am talking about the great Don Wildman. You might know him from Cities of the Underworld, Mysteries at the Museum, or any number of shows on Travel Channel or Discovery Channel or History Channel uh, over the years. Um, I don't think he was on Discovery Channel. I have misspoken, but he was generous enough to give me some of his time and answer some of my questions. And you know, his insights on on the world that he has traveled vastly as well as um his insights on people and and himself now he's 60 years old and he's still doing this stuff and it's it's amazing i really think you guys are going to love this interview i did as little editing as possible because he had so many great things to say and without further ado i'm going to let you get into it because i love it so much this is my friend don wildman you and i have lots in common Thank you, first of all. I, I don't think uh, anybody in their right mind would hold it against you if you were to not have done this. So thank you for doing this. It's uh, Thank you. Yeah. I'm a, I am indeed a busy man, but uh, <laughs> it's too much to explain. Yeah, well... I'd like to, I mean, I'm going to format this obviously a little different, uh, but I, I'd like to start if I could. So obviously you, there's not a bunch about you out there in the world outside of your career. Uh, you, you know, grew up Jersey, Pennsylvania. You have a lot of teachers in your family. And I'm curious what that shift was when you were like, hey, I'm going to do acting and, mm. uh, and what that looked like, what kind of reactions did you get and, and what made you decide to do that? Yeah, my dad wanted me to be a, a kind of civil servant type of person, not in the postman sort of way, but he wanted uh, his kids to be doing good things in the world. And and so he uh, he saw me doing uh, education or some such thing. Okay. We didn't he didn't make us do anything, though, I have to say on a more positive note. Uh, my parents were great in that they really started early doing something that I think all parents should do which is telling their kids, you can be anything you want to be. Yeah. You can do it, anything you want to do. Just make sure you're happy doing it. And, uh, and my dad, uh, though he initially kind of didn't understand my acting desires or, yeah. or, or me, me anyway, in general, uh, he got real far really behind it when he came to see me in a play in college. I'd done a, a, a production of Equus with a really good actor, uh, a friend of mine um and it was you know it was a step above your usual school time stuff it was yeah. a, a very very well done production for the small school that i was at and we were pretty good and it's a great play so it's hard to screw it up so you um, feel like that was like a turning point with uh, yeah he gave me he yeah. gave me that that's that christmas which would have been a couple months after seeing me he gave me actors on acting which is a big thick book of of uh, excerpts of uh, acting texts over the years and in his inscription, he wrote, may the, may the roles that you play be bred for your soul. 
which was <laughs> a very dad jokey kind of thing to say, but yeah. but it was a nice nice inscription, and it was a very from the heart uh, support for me to quit college and go to acting school in London, which is what I did in uh, 1982, I guess I did. Okay. And I auditioned for a thing called the a place called the Drama Studio in the, yeah. the West London part of it. It's called Ealing in West London, <clears throat> and I went there for what was really a postgraduate course. It wasn't really a proper training course. But I, I was given the opportunity to take the last year of my mother's willingness to pay for college <laughs> and put it towards one year of, of acting school. And that's what I chose to do. So you were in London for a year and then back to the I States? Did. I did. Yeah, in a very, very important year of my life. Uh, sure. 1980, yeah, 83, 84, which was a kind of dramatic time. I remember the Harrods bombing. Yeah. Uh, I remember a lot of IRA scary stuff that was going on in the early 80s. And it was a pretty intense time to be there. Plus, it was great music. It was a great time to be in London yeah. with UV40 and all the rest of them. Oh, my God. Yeah, the, um, the bands of the 80s coming out of England. Uh, yeah, so it was cool. <laughs> I didn't. I had pennies in my hand. So, I mean, we were literally, like, pooling our resources just to buy gas in our apartment for, for heating the water and stuff. So we were just broke actors, acting students. Yeah. But it, it was, by osmosis, a really interesting time to be abroad and to see the United States from another uh, angle um, and, and such a privilege. Most, most kids don't get a chance to do that. You know, that's, that's really interesting. I might take this opportunity to advertise something. A few years back, last couple of years of the Obama administration, I was asked to be part of a White House um, press event, basically, that was held at the State Department. And the reason that they held this was because there was such an emergency that must only be continuing today that uh, kids, because of their parents fear of terrorism and because of economic malaise and so forth uh, had stopped considering years abroad as an important part of their education oh. and and it has become a big problem in america but not because it's you know it's a good thing to do anyway yeah but but it's a huge part of the modern resume for cor corporate jobs if you don't have a language ability or time abroad on your on your resume you're going to be overlooked for that second uh, yeah. job. You know, you, you always be hired for the entry jobs, but you won't get that next job over the kid that went or the kid that speaks another language. And uh, that's a big disadvantage that American students are going through these days. So I had that advantage just because I went to England. I didn't learn yeah, another language. That's an interesting perspective to, to come from too. And I actually just interviewed someone who she left to uh, teach. She went to school for to college in Central Michigan to teach and she went to Australia to student teach. And then ended up going to New Zealand, and now she's been in London for the last 12 years. And the experience, this is actually something I wanted to ask you towards the end here, but I'll, I'll jump into it now because it kind of ties right into that, is I wonder, given your experience in London, and then on top of that, all your experience traveling around the globe, um, what are some of those advantages, and this is something I talk about on the show a lot, of experiencing those other cultures and, and opening your eyes to... Uh, I guess more tolerance and open-mindedness. You know, we live in a country where there's a lot of bubbles of just you know, people that yeah. look like me and do the same stuff as me to some degree. And and when you step out of it for, uh, you know, whether it's a year or uh, ongoing, it's, I think it really changes people. I'm wondering what you, I'm sure you have a unique perspective on that. Totally. We have a, I mean, this is a great country we live in and, and yeah. we're just given enormous advantages just by being born American. That being said, uh, that can have a sort of intoxicating effect or at least a, a tunnel vision effect on you. 
And that's not healthy, you know. And so just like thinking you're the only one that matters in, in your life, you know, you can't think that your country is the only one that matters either. And so it's just a part of a sort of maturation process that every human being goes through. This country is also going through that right now, I think. And and when I went abroad and I have gone a lot on my jobs and so forth, yeah. you're really amazed at how little people think about the United States. Uh, not, of, <laughs> not of the United States, but yeah. they don't think about it. You know, they have their own lives in Egypt and they have their own lives in Austria. And, you know, it's like they barely think about us. You know, yeah. there is an opinion of the United States that's very exceptional in that there's a lot of different people in the United States. The whole world is in the United States. You know, every it's like a six degrees. Somebody knows somebody in the United States of America, everywhere in the world. And that's a, a really unique kind of culture that we have. And also, I think, a responsibility to the world because we've chosen to be this kind of country. And so everybody feels uh, close to the United States in one regard or another. Either they like it or they don't. But uh, but the truth of the matter is, it's really healthy to go to to the Netherlands and find out that, you know, people may glance at a headline about the United States, but they're not thinking about it as the center yeah. of their universe. And Americans, we, because we have such a huge country and we, you know, so rarely leave it, uh, generally speaking, it's hard to remember that. A really yeah. good example of a, a good piece of thinking that has worked for me in my international life is to picture Europe, um, you know, projected upon the United States and realize they're about the same size. And in Europe, all those different countries are like our different states, yeah. you know, so it's just the same thing. It's just like a weirdness about the United States that we've included all these different countries within one country, yeah. as opposed to Europe, where everybody admits they're very different and they have different languages and stuff. Here, we've taught everybody the same language, but we're all very different people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's some people that that would prefer the divisiveness more than I know more than anything else. Um, well, he fought so, a big war over it. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I, well, I, I'm curious, and I don't know if you want to touch on this or not. Uh, feel free, obviously, to say no to anything. But um, I wanted to get into you know your time coming back and then going to LA. I, I for one went out to LA to chase the musician dream, and and that you know went up in smoke. But uh, what what does it look like from you know coming back from London to like the early two thousands when you start uh, you know really making a name for yourself? Well, yeah, good question. I, um, for better or worse, had a, 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 um, what was the criteria, <laughs> a career criteria of being able to pay the rent. You know, yeah. I I was one of those. I got to support myself doing whatever I did. And my parents were not ones to send money or keep, there was no coddling in my family. I was the last of five. And by the time they got to me, it was literally wow. picked out of them. <laughs> yeah. they, they sold the house the year after I left. I was uh, gone. I, that and, same uh, thing happened to me. <laughs> are you a youngest child? Yeah, I'm the youngest and I no longer have the childhood home. Yeah, as soon as I moved out when I was 18 or 19, uh, it's gone. <laughs> yeah. And yes. that's a very unique uh, position to be in life. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of commonality. You know, I had two best men in my wedding. Both those best men are our youngest children because <laughs> youngest children of families get along in a unique sort of way, just like oldest children, I'm sure do. But but you have this radar for life that comes from being the, the one pulling out the rear all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's unique. I mean, and I would venture to say that's why you interview people because you're interested in other people. And that's, yeah. that's what comes from 
from uh, being the young kid in a room full of older kids all the time. I had five older sisters or four older sisters. And yeah. so there were five of us. And uh, anyway, you got four a, older a sisters and, and you're the only brother. You're the only guy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure. There's stories there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> only good ones. I mean, I was yeah. a, a very fortunate kid. Anyway, your question was about career. And, and so I needed to be able to, to uh, survive. I needed to be able to support myself. And so I immediately got that restaurant job in New York when I came back and, and started, you know, paying the rent, uh, roommates and the whole, you know, young in New York kind of thing that I did. But at some point, 26 or seven, I was very, very unhappy with the course I'd taken, not because it was the wrong choice to make. It was the only choice I had to make given my personality, but I was, uh, I was not happy with the money situation. And so I made a very conscious choice, thanks to a very dear friend of mine who was a casting director, to decide to uh, audition for commercials. And when I began doing commercials, I it was weird. I had this, I knew the cadence. Like I was, just like today, kids are so born into social media and, and everything yeah. that they can use on their phones. I was born into television. You know, that was my world when I was in the 60s. And so you just learn it like a language. And yeah. so I could hold up things to the camera and talk in that very weird cadence that people do when they advertise things like it was second nature. Yeah. And I knew how to look at products and I knew how to look at the camera. And I just had this weird ability to do it. My friends would constantly, it was a, it was like a party trick I had. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, <laughs> so I began doing it and I, and I caught fire pretty quick. And so after a couple of years, I was making a lot of commercials and a really good living and created this whole persona of mine, which was this guy who basically runs around on a bike in Manhattan, uh, auditioning, you know, and, yeah. and doing, going, you basically go into advertising offices and sit in a waiting room and then go in and do your two or three minute of, of a co commercial audition. And once you start making them, you become more and more known and your agent would sell you on a smaller and smaller circle and became more select. And that's a really fun life. Uh, it does not exist anymore. I was the last generation of actors to ever have that opportunity because the internet now makes it so different from, of a yeah. casting process. I can't. I didn't. I've never really put in perspective what that industry's got to look like with uh, with the internet. I, I guess I've never really thumbnails. thought about that. But that's yeah. That's that's Just really thumbnails. interesting to think about. Oh my God! It, the worse than that was the uh, the effect it had on the voiceover business. You know, as soon as you could throw digital packets around and just send information and pictures, you know, to, 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 uh, buyers, you know, yeah. the advertising people, um, they became greedy and they wanted to see everybody. And once that happens, your probability factor has gone down yeah. many fold. And so <clears throat> that period of time with, uh, with that kind of life was a short one, but it made me transition from being a nobody into being a working actor. And, I had my union cards, I had pension, you know, I was putting away stuff for pension. It made me into a respectable person. And, and by my mid thirties, I had done a lot of those kinds of things. The bottom fell out because of the internet and because of the new practices. But by that time I'd already sort of established myself within my family and my self identity and all that stuff. And that's what gave me my leg up. And, uh, that was followed by, uh, a few years of desperation in which I cashed out all my stocks because there was no more work and, and then 9-11 happened and uh, forget about it for work for a couple of years for an yeah. actor. Were you still in New York that, when that happened? Yeah, I was in New York. I was living on 23rd Street. Wow. I, was there. I, have a, I have a whole 9-11 story, as everybody does. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's when I said, screw this. And I, I went out and lived with my sisters for a bit of time. We all lived in Los Angeles. And 
it was easy for me to transition out there. And so I lived out there for a period of time, and that's where I met my wife. And I started auditioning for hosting jobs, <clears throat> which was okay. the, the well, natural that, segue. Yeah, that, that kind of <laughs> uh, tags into one of my questions I had, because, uh, you know, you, you have a few acting credits here and there, but then it seems like once you got, uh, what was it, um, Off Limits? Was that, no, what was the, yeah. was that Let the first me explain. one? Let me explain. Yeah, my, yeah, yeah. My crappy uh, acting resume. Um, so <laughs> hey, you got to you work with Martin it. Short. So is it really crappy? You got to no, that was a great day. Put in perspective. I worked, with his, I worked with his brother. I didn't work with him. I worked. No. He, I wasn't. I was in a makeup trailer for with with Martin for about I don't know fifteen minutes, and we barely <laughs> spoke. But uh, his brother and I worked. He was he directed that scene that I did. Okay. <laughs> But I am a huge Martin Short fan. Oh, yeah. So that... Have you just, side note, are you watching the new show him and Steve Martin are doing? Uh... No, not it. I don't watch anything anymore, really. But uh... God, It's so good. <laughs> is it? That's good. It's, it's really I good. started watching American Rust uh, this week because my friend is okay. one of the producers on that. But um, I don't see a lot of stuff. Anyway, I I watch old Martin Short stuff, yeah. and, and he's a, a hero of mine. Uh and we'll get to that, but I, I did want to explain. So you were saying something. I well, no, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, that's one of my questions I wanted to ask you is, um, did the oh, hosting stuff, yeah, did yes, the hosting stuff come naturally grit. or just happenstance? When I, uh, just to finish with the acting, I was um, <laughs> a very busy actor in that commercial way. I felt like I got away with it. I was flying under the radar. I never had to deal with hiring PR people. I didn't worry about ratings. All that stuff was not part of my acting career. And it was like 10 years. Yeah. You know, all I did was make commercials. <clears throat> I made two or three commercials a month. And all the other time I was, I was uh, trying to get the commercials. But at night I would do little indie plays and student films and stuff like that. And that was like age 28 to about 36 or something like that. It was like right in the middle of, you know, my youth. And uh, and so you don't see anything about that on, on a typical acting resume because what are you going to, you know, I did five years of sprint commercials. Yeah. What does that look like? So <laughs> that doesn't doesn't get listed. And uh, and yet it's a gigantic amount of acting. Yeah. <laughs> I some of the most incredible pieces of acting I've ever done were in commercials. Yeah. Um and I could just, uh, uh, you know, serenade you with these stories. I worked with Paul Newman, Paul Newman on a commercial one time. And it's just crazy acting story. Yeah, I, I anyway, mean, you got 30 seconds to show your best stuff, right? Like, that's... Yeah, and that's what it was. It was like, how do, you, how do you get this commercial, first of all, which is its own game? You know, how do you audition? Yeah. And then, then when you're doing it, how do you feel all the craziness of it? Because it's, it's acting. It's, it's, you learn something in acting school, which is, Acting is process, not result. If you play a result, you're not a good actor. And that makes sense or it doesn't, depending on who you are. But yeah, that's it's true about a lot of things, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, but if you go out into the world trying to do that, you, you generally are a bad actor. Well, all the advertisers want is result. They want, you should be a little funnier. You should be, he should talk faster. He should move quicker. He should do all, you know, it's all the things you should be doing in their minds because they've sat down and thought about this picture that they want, this tableau that they're trying to create. Yeah. And they have no interest whatsoever in the process of what that human being has to go through to create that moment. So I took all that in as a, as a commercial actor. And then you have to just keep quiet and say, okay, so I got to lift the shampoo up here and I got to look at it and I got to talk about it. Or my father's, I'm, I'm, you know, making something for my father at the grill. 
you know, how do I make this little moment? My, my wife loves this little moment, Advil commercial. Uh, it's in the middle of a whole montage. It's about a man and his son. I'm the son. I've got a little gray hair, which they put in with white makeup. And, and I'm at a grill and, and I'm doing like a stupid commercial moment. And I, I pretended it was cold. It wasn't working. And I pretended I burned my finger on the, on the thing. Ow. I said, I put my finger on it. It made the guy laugh because he's the other actor. He's like, that's not, <laughs> so he was like, that wasn't, that didn't happen. And we had a moment as a result. And that's in the commercial. And every time I saw that commercial, I'm like, there's a little bit of acting for you. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway. So yes, I got into hosting because uh, in 1990. Nine, I think it was, I called my best friend from my nice apartment in New York, which I paid for with my commercial money. And I was not able to pay for anymore because my money was running out. Yeah. And I called my friend who's we've gone side by side through this co career together. And I said, screw this. I'm tired of this roller coaster. I can't stand it anymore. I need something more sustained. I need a, a contract, God damn it. You know, I remember saying that to him. I need somebody to give me a contract for something instead of these one-day jobs. Yeah. And so that was my moment of saying, I got to be a host. I got to do something that's, that's obviously not going to be acting because I left that opportunity behind. Let me just say very clearly, I idolize actors. Yeah. Actors are great at what they do, like the real actors and and i got friends who are real actors and i idolize them it's a very 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 difficult thing to to do with your life let alone you know go to work and do and kind of create these moments and oh my god it's so hard to do you not lump yourself into that category anymore no I, I never did i mean i was always good but i wasn't really good yeah and when and i do have a really high standard for everything in, in life too high a standard, I'm sure. And so the fact that I wasn't really good and that I got in my own way was really troublesome to me, even in acting school. You know, yeah. I, I was one of the two or three actors who was going to make a living. You know, they, they told me that when I left that school. Uh, but I knew something that nobody could know, which is that I could not get out of my head. I was always talking to myself about, you know, oh, that wasn't good. No, why didn't you say it like that? Or how come not funnier? You know, it's like, imposter syndrome was always going on in my head all the time yeah and I, I uh, talked at length about that on the show <laughs> oh yeah. yeah well we're youngest children <laughs> That's yeah. what we, we're imposters from the day we're yeah, born full circle know? yeah <laughs> so uh that needed to be quieted you know yeah. in my head and and that's what commercials did for me because i could sure do that you know yeah. and and then i spent 10 or 15 years or whatever it was, 10 years looking at a camera, doing completely artificial things and making them seem natural, that it wasn't hard to go from that to being a host, which is kind of the same thing, you know? And, yeah. and then, then the magical thing happens, which I'll get to in a moment. You want me to get to it? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Well, well, I'm a, yeah, I go ahead. Cause I, then I'll segue. Into... Well, the thing that, the big thing that happened, uh, Oh man, these these kinds of conversations are are wonderful and frustrating because you know that somebody's listening to them trying to figure out what the hell went on in between it all. But um, when I finally life, life uh, went on between it all. <laughs> when I finally got a, a a job as a host for something interesting, it came. I I so I ended up in L.A. in like 2002, and. Uh, I started auditioning the way I did, you know, back in New York for anything. 
And uh, this guy put me up for a job called Weird Travels. And I went into this, uh, this new production company in Silver Lake. And, uh, and they were auditioning people in their office which is a, a really good way to see that these people don't know what they're doing. <laughs> you know, like real auditions happen in casting director's offices yeah. and they're, and they're the more expensive, I'm sure casting directors. And you sort of see, you know, the writing on the wall of a project from the way that it's cast. Yeah. So when this job was being cast in the lobby of a new production company with people who were kind of who, Oh, and the seats that you would wait, for the for your audition were around the corner from the space where they were auditioning the people so you were hearing everything that each other was saying and i was like this is miserable what are these people doing who are these people this is some losers i just remember having a real attitude problem about it all yeah and i came around the corner to say hi and i looked at the, the camera and they had written all the text out on a on a whiteboard yeah. cut a cut a circle in the middle and stuck it around the around the uh oh around the lens now that seems like a nice thing to do but a, a, a schmuck like me and a snob like me who's come from the world of television commercials knows that real tv casting directors don't do that yeah because if you have to you know read a teleprompter to do anything yeah because yeah, i memorize get your yeah, sides and that's it <laughs> yeah and you memorize and so i had a, an attitude problem is what i'm trying to say and uh, finally, I, I did this commercial, uh, this audition, and all of that came to pa came to pass in my audition. And I said, "Oh, this is awful," and I walked away. That is trying to set up a funny twist of life, which is all those people became the most important people in my career and my life, workwise. That small group of people turned out to be an extremely successful production company, who went on to produce Cities of the Underworld. And they took me off that first series. Okay, so they cast me off that, that stupid job. And it was like a two- or three-year job. Weird travels it yeah. was. And I fell in love with these people. They are my best friends to this day. And so they started Cities of the Underworld in 2006. They cast somebody else. They didn't want to, but they did because the network yeah. wanted somebody different than I was. And he didn't work out after eight shows. And they I was going to say, it wasn't called... very many, right? Was... No, he did, he did eight episodes. And I'm not sure of the story. I never speculate because who knows yeah. what, what really happened. But uh, it was a network decision. And the production company called me secretively and said, would you be interested in this? And if you say yes, we're just going to send you there. And you can literally you know, just step into this guy's role. And I said, how awkward is that? Sure, why not? <laughs> and that same weekend in 2000, January 2006, I got on a plane and I flew to Boston. And they had let the guy go the day before. So he still had his hotel room, or they so still had weird. his hotel room. And I came into the hotel room, and I was his same size. I used his same clothes out of the wardrobe <laughs> bag that they had there. Bought my own I never boots. put that together, and that's so awkward. Yeah. And I literally stepped into this man's life. And, and it was so weird, because the networks was like, this isn't going to work. And, yeah. and the production company just said to me, just kind of act like him, you know, just try to be like him. Well, you're physically completely different. Yeah. And, and I was incredibly different too. And I tried for a day or so to sort of do it as an acting job, you know, like inhabit this man's life, whoever he was. I knew that he was supposed to sort of be foul mouthed and not him, but I mean, he was playing a role. They yeah, wanted yeah. him to be 
sort of rough around the edges in every way. So I was trying to be that way, but I'm really not. And so it was a little false note for me. So we ended up at this underground railroads uh, story in Concord, New Hampshire, uh, Concord, Massachusetts. And there was a, uh, a particular um, space behind a, a fireplace. It's, what do you call it? Behind the hearth, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they had found some artifacts of, of people who were enslaved people had been brought there, apparently. And they had, would have been brought into the house through a tunnel that came from the root cellar in the backyard. Well, this tunnel was long gone. This is hundreds of years ago. There's no connection. Maybe, maybe not. And it was just a bad story. It was sort of lame. And I said to this cameraman who I didn't know from Adam, uh, hey, let's just go in the back and see about that root cellar. See what it looks like. It was supposed to be underground. Let's see if that's underground. So we went back there, just the two of us. And, and it was not even a sound man in those days. It was just a cameraman, me and my microphone. Yeah. And uh, I crawled into this into this root cellar and I rummaged around in this sort of dirty space with leaves. And and it just occurred to me how ridiculously frightful it must have been for these poor people as they were being shepherded or whatever you call it, you know, ferried up, oh, yeah. uh, up the up to the north. And they're every night or maybe twice a day, who knows, in some strange space being fed, hopefully, but probably being just kept for a moment and then on they go on to another troop thing. Yeah. always moving always hidden it's uh yeah and they would have been in these really weird awkward moments like crawling into a freaking root cellar yeah so i turned to the camera and i said this and i sort of had a moment of you know not revelation it wasn't brilliant but it, it was just a real moment yeah that particular piece of video got back to the history channel after they've been through eight eight shows with somebody who wasn't apparently doing what they were hoping for. And it was like a light in the forest for them. And they said, Oh my God, the guy can just talk and can just have a, a real moment on camera. And that's my whole career. That's exactly why I have a career. What was a that little, what an amazing way to describe, to describe that. And, uh, and I know what you're talking about. And I mean, I think that's why, that's why I'm excited that this is happening right now. You know, like uh, there is a genuine, a genuine, um, I don't want to say curiosity, but just a genuine like interest and excitement about the knowledge and the history that you, uh, that you portray that I think that people get, you know, I, I think people mm. get that when, when you're, when you're going to those places and, and I, I, this kind of exactly segues into what I wanted to ask you. And that is, you know, I wasn't, I'm not sure of this answer because given your, the educators in your, in your life and your family, was history like a thing for you at, in school at some point, or was it something that you are like now you are somewhat yes. of a historian because of your job? Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I'm not <laughs> even close, but uh, I am, you know, I always say that what we're trying to do on these shows is, is uh, sort of prime the pump for somebody to want to find out more. Yeah. And hopefully most importantly, a young person, you know, maybe even very young, who knows, you know, like somebody watches this thing and sees this guy who's kind of trying to piece together the story in a realistic way uh, and might themselves feel tempted to look into it themselves. That's all I can do. Yeah. And honestly, that's all anybody can do on television in any way. You know, I, I've seen very little television in my long life <laughs> that I could even cite as changing my my path in life at all. You know, like yeah. Jacques Cousteau would have been one of those people because I tried to be a marine biologist when I was in college. I failed because I was bad at math. 
but uh but he was one of the few people that actually made me huh you know like this matters yeah and then the other four billion hours of television i've watched that hasn't done a damn thing except pass the time you know so i have a pretty low bar to to reach for as far as what i can do on television um so what i try to do is just create this excitement you know an interest in 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 the experience of it and help pass people's time <laughs> which isn't which is somewhat of a noble path you know considering yeah. how much time i pass in my life i guess it's nice to to be that guy yeah i wish they but were anyway, uh, playing reruns for everybody during this entire pandemic <laughs> i know right i was i've gotten to watching uh, hawaii 50 on me television lately just because i'm oh, like oh yeah <laughs> just becoming very nostalgic <laughs> anyway you asked about history yes my father started his career as a history teacher and uh me and my sisters we were living on a you know our family was a teacher's family we had a tent trailer and my dad would design these these trips with his, with my mom that we would go up and down the eastern seaboard essentially and he would take us to battlefields and monticello oh and, you grew up doing this then <laughs> totally every every three weeks in 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 august or whatever yeah we you're just to, being you know. on you're just on camera for it now <laughs> yeah exactly no it was, it was true and the, the most important thing i did on those things and the most important relation to what i do now was that uh you never looked at anything you know my dad would take these to these places and say well this is where the battle was and we're like oh here's another field you know we're walking around another field with maybe some plaques yeah but there was never anything except some cannons that may or may not have been part of that battle and then you'd go into this to the headquarters and there'd be the diorama and you'd look at the little dioramas and try to figure out yeah. what was going on there well that was a, a perfect training ground for being you know involved in history programming because you're basically doing the same thing, you know, Hey guys, this is what happened. You know, imagine this always doing that kind of, thing. um, I, I want to get to cities around the world. Cause I have a, a few specific questions to that, but I, I am curious doing so many shows over the years, uh, you know, off limits cities, the underworld, uh, would you just do buried worlds? Um, have you ended up in the same spot, just like doing a slightly different story? <laughs> Yes, that's very funny. That's a good question because that's true. Uh, it's a little awkward right now because I'm just getting on in years, and and there's only a certain amount of stories that network. Here it is. Networks are data driven operations. Yeah. They really make their decisions based on how many people watch and did the the audience sustain itself. Did it lead into the next program? You know, it's all data, yeah. and they have now been doing it for a very long time. So citing data from 2006 is no big deal. You know, it's a computer degree. You got it. And uh, they can see what I've done in the past that worked for audiences, and they will repeat themselves as much as they can if, if they can, if it gets the numbers. You know, there's not going to be this great creative, like, hey, let's do this because... No, they're doing things because their business is on a very thin margin. You know, they have to yeah. make a little bit of money to make it worthwhile. And... Uh, and so, yes, I get sent to Europe a lot, first of all, and to white people worlds a lot. And, uh, you know, Eurocentric kind of stuff is generally what happens when yeah. you're doing major market television. <clears throat> Has, have you ever been good. to like a, a very specific place like, you know, have you, oh, this is, you know, for cities of the underworld, it's like Nazi tunnels of death. But then, you know, for <laughs> for some haunted show, it's it's, you know, haunted Nazi tunnels or something, oh, but it's yeah. the exact same place. We did a, a show, what was it? Um, well, I guess it was this last Cities of the Underworld. Uh, and we had, um, 
we did a, a show on Cappadocia, which as we are taping right now, will be on tonight, I think, or maybe the next week. I'm not sure. Yes. Cappadocia is right in the middle of Turkey. And, uh, and Cappadocia was part of that first season of Cities of the Underworld in 2006 or seven. And uh, it's a great, great place to go, an incredible thing to see. And so I had a, a little bit of awkwardness because I'd been there twice before on two different shows in the past. And now I'm doing this new show, but it's sort of the same show, but yeah. I have a new crew. And, you know, when you're a host and, and especially a, of an older, <laughs> I'm an older generation. And so I'm, I'm, you know, 20 years older than some of these cameramen. Yeah. They are having the time of their lives. They're going to these places for the first time that I remember how that felt. Far be it for me to get in the way of that. I want them to have a great time just as a human being. You know, I'm like, yeah. I don't want to get bum anybody out. But I've been literally down that tunnel 20 years ago. And this is what happened down that tunnel. Are you sure you want to do this one? And like that kind of attitude <laughs> is very frustrating for those poor guys. Yeah. Uh, we did Fort Mifflin in, in Philadelphia, uh, which is a great um, fort uh, dating back to the Revolutionary War, which is very rare in the United States, ironically. Um, there aren't many revolutionary sites in America, let alone forts. Yeah. And this one's really good. And But what makes... Uh, what makes Fort Mifflin really cool is that in 2005, I think it was maybe six, some guy was mowing the lawn and his foot went through, you know, that proverbial way that it happens. <laughs> and there was a space that had been covered up 50 years before in some sort of landscaping thing. Turned out to be the last, uh, uh, a prison cell for the last guy that was hung in the civil war, wow. a deserter hung in the civil war. And, uh, and his, when they found it and they went down in there, it had been a month before we shot it for a television show. So I was one of the first people, and certainly the first uh, cable television show. The news had been in there and stuff like that. But, but the first TV show to go in there and see this stuff that was like right there. It was exciting. So now here we are, and I'm driving along with my crew, and they're going, oh, we're going to Fort Mifflin. I'm like, oh, it's great. Just wait till you see this incredible thing. Well, we got there, and they had completely made it in, into a tourist site. Oh. They had, you know, They'd put concrete steps down where I was crawling down a hole, and and it had been completely different than I advertised to these guys because because they you know life moves on. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I imagine yeah. that's probably happened across like around the world. I feel like that's something that comes up or it used to come up, you know, in in the old series back in what oh seven oh nine. Um, yeah, where you were one of the first people to be there with the camera crew, and now it probably is. Just like right. you just said, you know, there's there's a gift shop, you know, on the way out. Yeah. It's, well, uh, the, the old show had a had a had a quality to it that was interesting. In that, um, that show was sold on the notion that uh, a kind of crazy person runs around the planet who just just wants to see the tunnels and sees what's on the ground. You know, we we would make a joke of it. You know, it's yeah. tongue in cheek. Like, oh, this is interesting. The most beautiful building I've ever seen. But what's underground? <laughs> <laughs> Where's the sewers? Would be always yeah. The yeah, uh, it's fascinating to be in London. But can I get into the sewers in London? <laughs> well, that's um, that's that's the funny thing about cities down the world. So since we're talking about it already, I'll just jump in here. First of all, I, I mean, I'm knocking on the door of 40 right now and thinking about doing some of the stuff you were doing in your mid 40s in those first seasons. I, I'm like, oh, man, that's crazy. And then seeing you do this now. Uh, are you, I mean, dare I ask, are you 60 now? 60. I'm six years old. Like, you can see it on Wikipedia. Bravo. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, I, I pray to God that I can do all that stuff when I'm 60. So good oh, for you. you. Will. 
Um, You'll be fine. That's, it's we're amazing. a different generation. We're, you know, let me just say, we're we're the generations who grew up on organic vegetables and. Yeah, but Don, know, I'm also the generation that got the internet when I was like 16. <laughs> so you know, it's all downhill from there. Um, but so yeah, that's amazing. That's if 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 you're not a role model for any other reason, it's that you can still accomplish all that. Uh, oh, that's good. I um, figure I have I have uh, this in me till I'm about 75. That's yeah. how I feel right now. Uh, it probably won't work out that way, but I do feel like I am about 45 at this point in my life, and yeah, I'm just really you. lucky. But, <laughs> I couldn't but, believe so it. So you were, you were saying. Sorry. Well, I, I was going to just ask some kind of you know rapid-fire Cities of the Underworld uh, questions, because I, I, I don't know what it is about that show uh, that I love so much. I, I think, uh, like I mentioned, the the enthusiasm and excitement that you put behind it and the the, the genuine like interest you, you show, um, like you were talking about being in that root cellar. I think those moments where you're kind of mentally reenacting what people in that position, whether it be Mayan, Incan, you know, World War II, Europe, whatever it is, uh, you put yourself in that for a second. And I, I think that well, it's a, helps the it's show. A strong, it's a strong device, uh, both um, literally and figuratively, because uh, figuratively, it's just cool to have a the notion of somebody going underground. People are automatically curious about what's underneath their feet all the time, no matter yeah. where you are. Yeah. Literally, it's a good idea because it makes the camera, it gives a lot of power to the, you know, the, the, the focus on this guy is in the tight space. It always looks a little more claustrophobic than even it really is in real life. Yeah. Uh, it just intensifies the experience. And so half your battles won right off the bat in terms of getting somebody's attention because you've got this whole effect going on all the time wherever you are we were very much in the line of danger quite often if not <clears throat> from things falling on us then asbestos and stuff like it was just not good they dangerous environment <laughs> yeah we should have had the mask if you looked if they turned the camera around the entire crew is in masks because yeah. even in 2006 the price knew. you pay for being the host down <laughs> no yeah, I know. no ppe for you um the uh metho mesophilioma or whatever they call yeah, it yeah yeah right around the corner from me well speaking on that same note uh what's the I mean, have you ever been caught? And I've we've seen you get caught on on camera. But have you? Has there been anything where you're like, okay, cut? Like I'm literally stuck. Can't get... I'll tell you a cool thing. Yes, yes, there are those moments, uh, but they're more for the cameraman than than for me. Yeah. You know, we we would just get into trouble. And I remember one time under Dublin. Uh, Dublin has a um, an underground river that runs under the entire downtown of Dublin, which is fascinating. Called the Poddle. P-O-D-D-L-E. And the Poddle is basically just a sewer now. But back in the day, it was like the river that the Vikings came up into the middle of, of that settlement and took over. Um, you get into it, you access the Poddle through the manholes now, and, and you go down there. And so we went down, just a, a cameraman named James, who knows who I am talking about. I won't <laughs> embarrass him. But uh, we were in this terrible little environment, and he had to do the sound as well as the picture which was frustrating to him and to any cameraman uh and there were connections going on with the camera that weren't good and so at some point his hair caught on fire because it sparked, sparked <laughs> under his hair and he had this sort of beautiful curls and stuff and, and they went on fire and Not it was anymore. just him and me down on this hole and putting out his head of his hair on fire oh my little. god <laughs> <laughs> it was funny he was really mad yeah and i don't blame him i don't um, i wouldn't blame him either <laughs> yeah but there are all those kinds of times when we, partially we would get into those situations intentionally for yeah. the same reason that the the general effect worked 
it worked that much better if I was in any kind of danger. And so once the network started to see me, you know, nearly falling off something or whatever, yeah. they were like, can he nearly fall off something again? Because that was really good. And uh, <laughs> and we started using that more than, you know, being surprised by it. Well, even in uh, this season, you watch yourself, you know, you uh, the Black Dahlia episode, I think it was, and there's the vent right there. And I'm like, how much further can you go? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, that that freaking vent was but that was that was an early shoot for us, I think. And uh, I was sort of trying to show the camera guys that, that I would do this stuff because yeah. they were, you know, OK, so we need to back off a little bit. The new Cities of the Underworld is different than the old one. Yeah in that the old one was a sampler basically we would go to one region or a city and we would sample all the undergrounds and we would tell different histories of that area yeah and so it was kind of a, a catch-all underground thing um the new one is more of a through line question an investigation of a of a historical question yeah into which or in which undergrounds play a role and so we try to populate it with as much underground as possible but it's really telling a bigger story than just these tunnels so we're sort of in between these two formats right now trying to figure out where we'll get to if we get another season which as we were taping we don't know if we will or not yeah. um in the process of this first season i was working with a crew that i hadn't worked with before and so i was showing them that hey if i go down this vent down here it'll get kind of cool yeah. and they're like what <laughs> no seriously just keep following me it'll be fun and so we would just squeeze 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 and that was terrifying yeah. what what that that uh biltmore hotel which is this beautiful hotel yeah. has this huge vast uh, basement space and even below what is the parking garage elsewhere but the basement space underneath that old hotel goes on forever and then you go through a door and you find out there are these tunnels that actually do connect further out yeah. And those tunnels have been used, repurposed into heating, you know, heater or air conditioning. Yeah, H8. Very large HVAC. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, it, and they've all just used these tunnels and then they built into them these other vent systems and stuff. So it was kind of perfect for us in terms of like, what the hell, you know, is underneath the Biltmore. Yeah. That's funny. Um, have you ever been seriously injured? What's the worst injury on, on cities? No. No, I have nothing. I, I would be lying if I told you I was. I'm very careful, uh, yes. mostly because I know the entire production relies on me being in a in a good place. You know, yeah. I'm. I would be uh, unprofessional if I put myself into that much of a, a dangerous situation. I've fallen off of things and you know jacked a hip or whatever it might be, but I have yeah. never. I've come close to having a major emergency. This was not on Cities of the Underworld, but when I was doing mysteries at the museum. Uh, for so many years we would do these specials and um one time we went up to do the special trying to figure out new and different ways of doing uh, iconic stories is a big part of this job and so we were doing a story on the on the titanic so we decided that somebody me i should go down and look at, a, at the bottom of an iceberg yeah. <laughs> i said oh yeah well <laughs> really i could do that sure okay great so off we go to newfoundland and uh I put on a dry suit. I'm not a professional dry suit guy. I, I've dived my entire life, so I'm really good at that. But dry, dry suiting is its own dynamic. <clears throat> and so I went down. It was 36-degree water, water. And they tell you when you're doing this that you'll breathe in little ice chips because oh. your, your hot air will be met by the cold water or the, the water freezes the air inside your regulator. 
And when hot meets cold, you get little moisture, and that moisture then swiftly becomes ice, and you breathe it back in. Wow. So this, as you're breathing under that kind of water, you're getting a little, it's like a little dust of ice all the time because that's yeah. what's happening. And the, that's not really Sounds a big terrible. deal. <laughs> the other side of that is you have two places, this, the first and second stage of your, of your regulator, which is what's stepping down the pressure of the air coming out of that tank, yeah. making it breathable. Um, those will freeze. And there's a little rubber diaphragm in there that will freeze up. So it will freeze that stage of that regulator. And so it ices up inside. And so you have to take it out and bang it on the iceberg to loosen up the ice that's in there and start over. So with that knowledge, we went underground, underwater, and I had an extraordinary dive looking at the bottom of, a, of an iceberg, which is something everybody should see in, on YouTube or something if they want to, but um, an extraordinary moment in my life. And I have also done a lot of diving shots, and so I know what they want. I know what the editors will need. And so we sort of go through the array of, wow, look at this poses that you go through yeah. and <laughs> running, you know, diving at the cameraman and going away from him, going over his head. You sort of go through this whole uh, bunch of them. And so I had been doing that for a while and also, you know, speaking about stuff. And then I was diving along thinking he was f getting me from behind and he wasn't because I looked back and he was getting his regulator knocked on the iceberg by the two tenders who were with us. And I was alone and I'd been diving for a long time and I've been like, wow, they're, they're way back there. And they didn't even notice that I was gone. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> and uh, there was a little shelf of the iceberg underneath and I decided to sit down and just kind of wait for them to come. It's one of my favorite part of scuba diving often is just sort of stopping and sitting there yeah. and breathing water, which is so much fun. And I'm breathing about 30 seconds and all of a sudden I have no air. I'm like, oh, I have no air. How interesting. And I'm about 40 feet below. I look at my regulator and it's on zero. It has no air in my, my, my tank, which is a terrible situation to be in. Yeah. Because you panic, you have no air, and you head for the surface where the air is. And that's how people get embolisms, they're called, which is a bubble going into your... your it's hard to explain, but the chemistry yeah, yeah, is not on, yeah. your, on your side when this happens. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I said to myself, well, I could either pass out here on, on my iceberg and drift away or I'm going to go to the surface and live or not and so I bolted for the surface and when I got up there I was like now what am I going to die and I didn't die and so my training kicked in and I did the right thing that you learn about in dive school whenever you take that which is that you keep breathing as you come up and you adjust yourself to the level of, of pressure as you're coming up most people don't do that if they're panicking yeah. I wasn't panicking and so when I got to the top, everybody freaked and came running to me to find out if I was breathing, bleeding out of my mouth or my nose. And, and yeah. I wasn't. So that was kind of one of those close calls. Where yeah, that's scary. Terrible yeah. That just reminds me, uh, just that visual always reminds me of, I think it was the abyss uh, where one of the mm -hmm. guys shoots to the top and, you know, I, yeah, he starts bleeding out his ears and <laughs> yeah. that movie. I, um, broke my, I broke my collarbone oh. in my first job. <laughs> I flipped over uh, handlebars and smashed my head, knocked myself out on a on the Devil's Staircase in Sedona, Arizona. Oh, yeah. I've been there. And, oh, yeah? yeah? That's a really hard thing to, to bike. Uh, and that was not a good day. Jeez. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good day. But the next day, I had to interview somebody. I had a broken collarbone. The producer came into me that night. I was lying on the bed. This is the first job I ever had in 1997 <laughs> for ESPN. 
And I was lying there and I was like, this is the first time I ever broke a bone. And I was like, what happens now? How does this work? And I was, I remember thinking, oh, gross, I have a broken bone. What the hell is going to happen? And I was having a little bit of a panic while I was lying there in the bed. And the producer knocked on the door and came in and said, so sorry about what happened. But do you think you would be willing to interview our our native american guide tomorrow <laughs> and i i said uh, sure why not and so i marched up this hill in the morning holding my arm in place because i hadn't even been you know nothing had been done to, it's a collarbone all you can do is leave it yeah I, I did the interview with my uh with my broken collarbone that's and it never was even then it wasn't in the show which was really oh, the ultimate that's got to be the real kick in the ass <laughs> um, <laughs> So uh, the the last thing I'll ask with all the places you've been, uh, regardless of which show it is, uh, do you have a like favorite or coolest place that you like constantly yeah. think about as your favorite? Uh, and it's breaking my heart these days because it's Ethiopia and okay. Ethiopia, the Tigray area of Ethiopia in the north um, is my favorite place I've ever done TV and possibly even been at, you know, in my life. Uh, there are, uh, elements to that culture that are remarkable. Um, the lay of the land is very Southwest United States, kind of that red clay kind of world. Yeah. And, and, uh, but it has this amazing backstory that was just incredible, which is, and it, it ties in, you know, there's a big Judeo Christian uh, past for Ethiopia. It's, it's the beginnings of a lot of stuff. And the Ethiopian Orthodox church has its, has its roots in the fact that there was this, uh, this moment when Christianity defined itself uh, the Treaty of Nicene, I can't remember how you say it, Nicene, Nicene, I can't remember. It's the uh, the first time that they decided what the true nature of Jesus Christ was. And you have the monophysites and the duo-somethings. And, and one half of those people thought uh, Christ was a god from the beginning. He was born divine. The other side says he was a human being who, was, who became divine. I'm wildly underselling that whole problem. It was a huge <laughs> deal. Good. And uh, at that point, whenever they made this decision, the people who were for the pro, to, you know, who won the argument were the good Christians and the other ones were the heretics. And so those heretics left and had to run away. And they, many of them ran to Ethiopia and they started the Ethiopian Orthodox Church eventually. And, uh, and they, many of those heretics went to the north and in the north, there are these ridges of mountains and they started these churches in these mountains and they're hand carved rock they're called rock carved churches and you climb to the top of these ridges and at the top you find these holes you know basically rooms that have been carved out of this this rock this sandstone and inside that has been painted with murals just like a stained wow. glass and there are something like 120 of these rock carved churches in the Tigray area that you could spend you know months and months going to see um, there's a few famous ones and we did that one, uh, with, with the priest and you literally walk up the mountain into these little, um, footsteps, which have been carved out from the, from the usage of these footsteps yeah. over the years. It's crazy. It's like a, a ladder to God and you get to the top and then you're into this magical space. That's 3000 feet fall off the ledge. And, uh, and inside there are you know, remaining texts that have been there for decades, if not centuries, I don't know. There was, I was looking at one, which was the Book of Mary, which was uh, written in, in that, um, oh gosh, what's the name of the, <laughs> the language? I can't remember now. Uh, the Aramaic? Ethiopian tongue. Oh, 
Never mind. No, it's the other one. But yeah, it's like that. Um, and it's the Book of Mary, which doesn't even appear in the in in our version of in the King James Bible. Yeah. Um, I just love that. You know, I love anything that shows me that my understanding of life was is a subjective one, and that there is an entirely contrary, if well, not contrary, but parallel universe going on at any given time elsewhere in the world yeah. that's just great i love that yeah. i love that about the united states and if i just bear you know forgive me for my my going on here but oh you're good i i am a huge fan of the united states of america because within its borders are those parallel realities happening all the time our problem as a country is we can't accept that yeah and we can't love that yeah and instead i watch the news with all of my fellow americans and all we hear in the media is how bad it is because we're so opposed to each other when the fact of the matter is the country was invented on that basis that we were factions and that human humanity is factioned and if we could just figure out a land where all these factions could live together and coexist and have a a constitution which protects the individuals from persecution then it might work out and it's it is working out we're going to get through this terrible phase of mainly people telling us how bad we are versus what's really happening which is you know there are people who are crappy people out there doing bad things to each other by and large the the country is still existing as it always has been which is with a lot of fiction and factionalism uh like it is in the world so yeah and that full circle kind of brings us right back to the beginning which is uh how you were commenting on the, the, you know, people don't think of the United States outside of the United States nearly as much as we think they do. And, uh, and there's just so much more going on. And I feel like when you open up that bubble, whether it's your physical bubble of where you're at, or or just the mental bubble of how you think about things, it really puts a lot of things in perspective and, uh, leads to a lot more, more tolerance and, and acceptance of different opinions and cultures and Thank you. Exactly. Tolerance and forgiveness uh, are the two words of our time. And it it is not taught to children very much. You know, we're we're somehow we've gotten to a place where we teach kids, you know, that you grab what you can and you go for it instead of the, 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 you know, I was raised a Quaker. Please. This is my world was was tolerance and and quiet and consideration of others and social justice and all the rest of that. So well, Um, anyway. Don, I, I really appreciate it. I got it. I think, yeah, in arm's reach. I think I messaged you this. It's the only History Channel show that I bought the DVDs of. Oh, my God. Look at you. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, when they, uh, well, I follow you on there on Instagram when you said it was coming out with a new season. I just about, just about jumped out of my chair. Yeah. I got, I still, I've, I've rewatched them countless times. I, I'm a big fan of the show and then the, just the history behind it. My wife's a history That's major. Cool. And I just, Thank uh, you. I'm really interested by it but i cannot thank you enough for your time and and just the fact that you did this uh, like i said at the <laughs> beginning i don't think any reasonable person would hold it against you if you said oh never mind <laughs> so we're done uh, i want to keep talking oh All hey right. yeah hey what are you what are you doing i got nothing going on um thank you very much yeah i i really appreciate it i, I want to be uh tolerant tolerant <laughs> so you'll bring tolerant of your time um oh that's but, right yeah, and Cities of the Underworld, hopefully, when this does come out, we'll know if it's renewed, and it is, because that would be great. Um, and then, If it is, uh, if, I'll tell you, anybody who's watching the current season or did watch it, 
depending on when they're listening to this. Yeah. Um, that was a first season of trying to do something that we try we thought about doing in the in the last season of the other show you know because we would do those other shows as those sample you know sort of grab yeah. grab bags and we would say gosh wouldn't it be great if we could sort of tie this all together with a big story and everybody say no how could we do that like how can you find enough undergrounds to populate <laughs> one story that's impossible you know you'd have yeah. to do something that's very specific and there wouldn't be enough for our whole season so this kind of show was what we wanted to do, but you know the but the downside of it is minimizes how much undergrounds you can get into a show. Oh yeah. So we are trying to find the middle the middle ground. No pun no pun intended. Yeah. You know where we can sort of get a little bit more of the underground stuff in there, uh, but still keep the investigation aspect of it. Yeah, I, I like the direction. Um, the only thing I. I just wish, oh, I guess I wish it was longer because some of those times when you are doing, you know, the classic underground stuff. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and then, you know, commercial and then it comes back and, and then we're in an office and we're talking to somebody and I'm like, oh no, I want to see more of, but I, like, I also like the commercials. Uh, <laughs> I also like the, uh, the, the questions though. And, and I appreciate it again. You're, you're, I really appreciate your time. And this was fantastic. Uh, I'm a big fan. Well, we'll talk again in the next, in the next season. Hope so. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. Okay. All right. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. How fucking cool was that? How fucking cool was that? You and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? All right, you just listened to my interview with Don Wildman. Do you like I kept that in the end? It just felt so genuine uh, when he hung up. I was like, how is this even fucking happening? I was so excited. Uh, and I, I'm still so excited. This was so cool. Like, I really uh, respect this guy. He's he's like a role model to me. And, and this meant so much. I can't even, I can't even tell you. So I, I'm still, I'm still blown away that this happened and, and I'm so happy it did. And like I said in the beginning, I'll tell you how it happened really easily. Really. I commented on something on Instagram and he replied back and, and we did kind of a back and forth. And, you know, if I had to guess, he, uh, might've thought I was someone else or maybe he was just curious about the show he asked if i'd ever interviewed a certain person and that conversation turned into me asking if i could interview him and here we are so that was it was pure happenstance and and i am thrilled thrilled that i have this now uh in a little box on the interwebs forever so Thank you, Don Wildman, and thank you, listeners. This is the week of Thanksgiving, and I cannot thank you enough. I got to thank my Patreons, uh, uh, Ginny, Kara, Katie, Erica, Andy, Dustin, um, Christina. I love you guys so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It means the world to me to have your support. Um, and if you, I, I probably missed somebody. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you want to help support the show too, it's, it's literally a dollar or nine a month. You can go to patreon.com slash friend request pod and make your donations there and also get cool information. All the Patreons found out about this awesome episode over a week ago, and you could have been one of those people. Think about that. So thank you guys. Thank you. 
I 82 episodes. I've actually done like a hundred and something episodes because of all the special, you know, the, uh, therapy episodes we've done with, with Jenny Helms in the past and, and everything else. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. This podcast is, it means the world to me and it doesn't exist without the support of all of you listening. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I will talk to you next week. Have a great day. Bye-bye.